My name's Todd. And this is Kathy. Welcome back to yet another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 441. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because it will help you to feel outstanding. And who doesn't want to feel outstanding? And always remember our motto, which is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show, we have my good friend. I've known, uh, his name is Josh St. Pierre. Josh, say hello. Hello. There he is. Um, I've known you three years, maybe? It's been at least that long, yeah. Something like that. Um, and Josh is a good friend. He has been in the Tribe Men's Group for about three years, give or take. He's been at each of my last two uh, Tribe retreats that I do with my good friend, Frank Nago. And he has, uh, to me, he's been an inspiration, and I'll explain why. Um, he, but why don't you tell people what you do for a living, Josh? Let's start there. I am a full-time soccer coach. And what else do you do? Uh, I also drive Uber on the side. Right. And I think at the time I thought I had a friend that might um, be an Uber driver, and um, you get bonuses by referring people to Uber, right? You do, yes. So, you know, this is kind of a selfish plug, but if there's anybody out there that's thinking about being an Uber driver... <laughs> go through Josh. Go through Josh, and you, it's, it, it's, they'll give you like 200 bucks or something, right? It, it varies uh, at the time of year when they need more. Sometimes the bonus will be even higher, but... Uh, yeah, the, the drivers all get bonuses who they refer. And then uh, on top of that, uh, the, the drivers actually get a bonus as well for signing up uh, through somebody. A lot of different ways. So um, just keep that in the back of your mind. So, but uh, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. So um, I think the best way to, to say this is Josh has no functioning kidneys, right? Yeah. Um, you, why don't you tell us your story? You grew up, no physical challenges, and then something happened when you're in Mexico. Is that where you were? Close, uh, Brazil. But, Brazil. Sorry yeah. about that. So, <laughs> tell us. Let's let's just sure. dive right in. So, so yeah. I mean, I grew up a uh, multi-sport athlete all my life. Uh, I always felt I was in uh, great shape. Uh, always took care of myself. I, you know, I was kind of aware of things I ate and stuff like that. But again, as a as a young kid, you just feel you can uh, throw anything down your gullet. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, uh, so I played sports uh, all the way through college, played basketball and soccer in college. Um, and then once I was done uh, playing sports, uh, after a few years, uh, I started getting into coaching. And even more so after that, uh, I really got into my nutrition and being physically active, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then when I was 30, um, how old are you right now? I am 43. Okay. So 13 years ago. Yeah. 13 years ago. Um, I don't remember the, the sequence of events that led me to going to the doctor one day. Um, but he felt my kidney function wasn't, uh, where it needed to be. So he sent me for a biopsy. Uh, I came back, uh, a couple of weeks later, and he said, well, uh, your kidney function is is definitely deteriorating. Uh, it can be in the next few months. It might not be for another f- few years, but if it keeps going the way it is, you're going to probably have to go on dialysis. And I really didn't know what that meant as much. You know, I'm kind of a still a young kid. Like, you know, I have probably the same train of thought that a lot of people do that when you hear that kind of news, you're like, oh, I'll just kind of ignore it. Maybe it'll go away kind of mm-hmm. thing. And um, I was in Brazil. Uh, on a dream vacation for a few weeks. And about halfway through the trip, uh, I noticed that water started pooling down on my feet. I really didn't know what it it was, but it basically felt like when you have galoshes on Mm -hmm. and rain gets in there and you kind of feel that that squishy feeling Mm -hmm. on your feet. 
and that would happen near the end of every day. But when I go to bed, uh, I guess the water or the fluid in my body would kind of pull back all over and kind of even itself out. So I'd wake up and it didn't seem like anything was wrong. So um, that happened for about a week uh, before I came back to the States and uh, I went to get it checked out and uh, they told me my kidneys had failed and uh, they went and put a port in my chest right away so I can get on dialysis and uh, it was a very unnerving event to say the least, very painful. Um, but again, I think after that happened, after I had a couple of weeks to think about it, I just said, you know what, this is what I've been given. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I think part of it was I was in denial as well mm-hmm. that it was there, but uh, I just went about uh, every day going to dialysis, getting it done. But I never changed a lot of things I did, whether it was working out or playing soccer. Uh, I remember the first time I had, so I had this port sticking out of my chest. It was like the size of um, uh, maybe a, like a half size of like an iPhone. Okay. But I would be playing with this thing, this soccer, and people are like, what if you get that thing caught on? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I really don't care. I just, I just, I don't want to quit doing the things I'm doing. Um, and I think that helped me uh, have a much stronger mindset through things. I also really delve into nutrition because I didn't understand why this had happened to me. I thought I was healthy. I thought all this thing, uh, you know, I was doing all the right things. Uh, so I went really deep into figuring out foods and and health and all these kind of things. And that has helped me probably more, more than anything over these past 13 years because I never get sick. I'm always still very active. Mm. Um, I'm able to do most everything I was uh, before this happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that became a, a huge, huge part of my life. Um, uh, six and a half years, well, I'm sorry, six and a half years after that originally happened to me, uh, I had numerous people get tested for me. Um, so that uh, means with the hopes that they can donate their kidney yes, to you. Yes. And for whatever reason, you know, I'm, I'm a blood type O, so it's, it's a lot harder to find compatibility because the only pe- people I can have donate to me are blood type O, whereas I can universally donate to anybody. So that makes, makes it a little bit more challenging. And um, after six and a half years, my sister finally came to me and said, you know, I know I've been a match, but I wanted maybe to be the next one down the road if, if the first one failed you. But you've been doing this for so long, I just want to help you out. So she donated a kidney to me. Um, that lasted a little over three years. Um, did they give, did the doctors give you a sense of, Hey, this is either going to work or it's not going to work or it might work and then it will stop working. What did they say to you? Well, you know, with anything like this, there's no guarantee. So, uh, basically they said, you know, the first three to five years is kind of, uh, where it's either going to really work or it's, you know, it's not. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, so yeah, once it gets past like the four or five year mark, from what I understand, uh, it's it's pretty much uh, probably going to be there for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as you do the right things and the things you're supposed to be doing. So, so will you go back to that time when I've obviously a lot of gratitude towards your sister for, Oh, for sure. Stepping up. And then three is, does it go from like, after, you know, you recover from surgery, does, is it as, how did you feel when things were working? It, it felt remarkable. Uh, there, there's a huge change. And I know people had told me at the time that you're going to feel a difference. And again, I felt pretty healthy still, even going through dialysis. And what is dialysis? Uh, it, it, it's a machine that cleans your blood that does 
what the kidneys are supposed to do. Right. And, and what type of commitment is it that, what does that mean? How many days a week or whatever? So um, you do three days a week. Uh, typically it's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And I guess depending on um, kind of your situation, it can be anywhere from three to four hours. And mine's, you know, I've been doing it for about four hours at a time. You know, there are other options. I've done home hemo where you kind of do it yourself. Um, you do it uh, less time, but more frequently. It just kind of helps uh, instead of, because dialysis is really hard on the body, especially the heart. So the more frequently you can do it, uh, the better it is for oh, you. Oh, got it. So, um, and then there's this other option, which I'm doing, I'm going to do here shortly is called peritoneal dialysis, where they just basically, um, they put a catheter into your belly and then the belly or at night, every night for about eight hours, you flush it uh, through this machine, mm -hmm. but it's a lot easier because you're not dealing with blood. Uh, you're just doing with almost the natural process of cleaning out uh, stuff in the stomachs. And I know you haven't done this yet. This is, you yeah. hope to be doing it because you're taking a big trip this summer and maybe incorporate this new type of treatment. Correct. Um, but does that mean you're going to have to sleep on your back and not like twist and turn or do you even know? I, I don't really know. I mean, it's it's going to be hard to believe that I can sleep on my belly because that's where it's at. Yeah. I'm not a belly sleeper anyway, so. Yeah. Uh, probably on my side or, yeah. you know, on the back. So Got it. Okay. Um, so let's go back. So you get your sister's kidney. It mm -hmm. starts taking. You're grateful. You're hopeful. Um, and you felt better. Like the real thing is better than dialysis. Yeah. Well, dialysis is only really supposed to... Uh, I, a nurse had told me this one time that it really only uh, cleans out like 5% or something like that. A very small amount, just enough oh, wow. to keep you alive. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so dialysis is as helpful as dialysis is. It's not uh, meant to uh, replace. replace by any means, by any means. So one of the reasons, and we're obviously jumping all over yeah. Josh's story, but one of the reasons I want him on is one is we have a vehicle, we have a platform of people listening. And part of my wish is maybe somebody listening out there will either consider uh donating to a loved one, or we'll talk about this matching program. And the other is just to bring an awareness of what it means to be a donor. So I just want to say, say to everybody out there listening is that's kind of why I wanted Josh on here. And one, like I said, he's a model of inspiration for me. And that doesn't mean you're always in a good mood. You, I've seen you at the, some pretty dark places as well. But when I met you for the first few years, you're always like, I'm doing it. I'm working out. Like you're working out like really heavy, like your exercise regimen was pretty intense. It was. And, and I think especially when it was going right before the transplant, um, I was, me and my buddy were doing insanity and P90X almost every day. I'd mm -hmm. come home from dialysis and I'd say, let's go. We're, we're, we're back on because part of my thought, I mean, I went in this almost like a fight, mm -hmm. you know, and I figured if I can go into this in the best shape of my life into this transplant, I'm going to come out. I mean, it's going to, heal me a lot quicker yeah. after the transplant. And I, uh, normally you're out about a month of really limited activity and stuff like that. And it, you know, you gradually heal and stuff. I started working at UPS as a truckloader almost a month later. Mm. <laughs> so, Which is a really hard job for anybody who is just, just anybody strong. <laughs> yeah. Who's, who has no physical challenges. Like that's a really hard job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I, I will admit now 
that I overdid it. You think? Uh, and I, I mean, even after afterwards, I mean, I went at it so hard. I mean, I've had so many people always keep telling me, Josh, just calm it down a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and I was always of the mentality, more is going to be better. And so I think even part of how I feel now, which is a little bit, I'm not broken down by any means like that, you know, but I think I put my body through so much, even though I was already going through a lot at the time, uh, just by trying to work out so hard and just really trying to, to fight this too much. Josh, don't you think, and you know, Todd, you too, that sometimes when we're struggling with something, if it be physically or emotionally, or it's, you know, work or whatever, that we do have the do mentality that it's like the more I do and the, you know, like you said, the faster I go and, and your intention was good. You weren't like, I'm going to do more so I can escape. You were like, this could be a good outcome for me. If I get as physically helpful, you know, healthy as possible, then it might make everything better. But I think that that's just a natural place that we go where we're like, I'm just going to go faster and do more because the the alternative is I have to really feel everything that's happening to me. You know what I mean? And it's not as if you were avoiding feeling it at all because, of course, you were. But I find that I do that. You know, like as soon as something, you know, if it be painful physically or emotionally, I'm like, okay, now I have to find the right book and now I have to move faster and I have to – and it kind of takes me a while to get back to a place where I'm like, okay, balance right? Right. You know, and so, and maybe, but sometimes balance means we, we feel a lot then, you know, and like you said, like right now, maybe you, you don't feel beaten down, but you're like, I feel this now. Sure. Right. Yeah. And I, I think you used a, a really good word there, word there, uh, escape. escape. Uh, and that was, that was my escape. Mm-hmm. It, it helped prove to me. And, and in some ways I was trying to prove to everybody else that I'm okay, mm-hmm. you know, and, Cause I, I didn't want people to, to feel like, oh, that's the dialysis person. I wanted everybody. I mean, I, I didn't even tell people about it sometimes and they would ask, oh, what's going on with your arm? And I just kind of like poo poo just Why would they say what's going on with your arm? Because, well, cause I have a port in my arm, mm-hmm. which I get dialysis done through where they stick the, the needles into my vein. So, I mean, it's kind of obvious. I mean, it's a, it, uh, it, they they connect an artery and a vein together to make your no, but they connect an artery and a vein uh, either on like your forearm, your bicep, uh, just to make the the veins much bigger because the needles they put in are uh, quite a bit bigger than a, than a, just a normal needle because mm-hmm. the blood's got to flow in and out of it. Mm-hmm. So, but that's why people would always ask what's going on with your arm, and I mean sometimes I I just say you know it's it's just nothing or whatever. I again I just didn't want people to look at me a little bit differently or yeah. treat me a little bit differently. You don't want to be a pity case. I don't want to be a pity, pity case. Right. Correct. So when I met you, you something drove you to, I don't know, reach out to our website or whatever and lean on other guys to do it. And as somebody who's been in uh, this retreat where we kind of go deep for a few days, you're still... Um, you're a tough nut to crack. Sure. Yeah. Let's just say that. But I've seen this opening in you just in the last few months. And it's weird because like you've shared some things with me and I've gotten permission from you to share a lot on this podcast um, that your body's a little tired and you're just kind of like, I get, I think your body was always a little tired, but you didn't want to believe your body and you didn't want to ask for help and you want to do everything alone. And what Kathy and I talk about all the time, or Frank and I talk about all the time, is we need to support and help each other, and we need to be vulnerable enough to ask for help. And just in the last 
you know, I went to your house, whatever, three weeks ago, you had these decals on your windows. Mm-hmm. And what's, what does it say on those decals? Basically, it just says, you know, my name is Josh St. Pierre and um, I'm in need of a kidney transplant. I'm compatible with blood type O and then a number to call Northwestern Hospital if uh, you would be interested in being a living donor. So when I saw that, I was both like um, moved, um, sad and happy. And I was sad because you're struggling. And when my friends that I love struggle, I feel that too. I was happy because you're finally asking for help. And like, what what prevented you, what prohibited you from asking for help before? And why are things different now? Well, again, I think it just goes back to, I, I've known people in my life, um, and I think a lot of people may know these people that they have something maybe even minorly wrong with them, but they're always needing help and they're always almost taking advantage of sometimes those situations. Um, and I never, I guess in the back of my mind, I never wanted to be that person who was just maybe taking advantage of being, being sick. Oh, you know, can you bring me over dinner? Can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? Um, I kind of went the other way. Like I can handle this myself. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted this to be my fight, mm-hmm. you know? And, but at some point, you know, I mean, the emotional roller coaster you go through by doing that is just, you're always beat down. You're always exhausted because you're just trying to do everything physically, emotionally by yourself. And I've heard enough stories now with, um, and I think it's gotten to me a few times where I'll hear of other people on dialysis or going through the same situation. And they talk about how they've, they're, they're so lucky to have so many family members around them to help them and to do these little things. And, uh, you know, like I was talking to my mom the other day and I said, you know, this is just becoming so hard. I mean, even just sometimes coming home from dialysis and then needing to walk my dog, right. you know, I mean, I do it, but it's just, just even take around a block. It's so physically exhausting. And I'm just like, I just need help with the little things sometimes, right? you know, just to give myself a break. And, uh, so, well, yeah. and just, you know, for transparency, your family is mostly out of state. Correct. Um, you're not married. No. No girlfriend. Nope. And you have a bunch of parents because you're a soccer coach. Correct. And I feel like you're held in very high regard from those soccer parents and those young kids. But it's not, there's no intimacy there. And, you know, just, it, it's hard for you, Josh, to ask me to drive you to the hospital. And two weeks ago you did that. And mm-hmm. I stopped what I was doing and got your ass to the hospital. <laughs> and then you asked our friend Mike to drive. And was it, we had breakfast, whatever, two weeks ago. And you had a buddy who I think decided on a meal plan for you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, he just, he didn't ask you what you wanted as far as oh, I see what you're your saying, recovery. Yeah. Um, Cause you just got out, out of the hospital from your surgery. Mm-hmm. And your buddy, I don't know who it was, said, this is what I'm doing. Am I making that up? He said, I- I'm going to bring over this meal, this meal, this meal on these particular days. Well, that happened actually. Um, that was what I was describing. It happened when I uh, lost my kidney. Oh, you did? And I went to the hospital for about a month. Uh, and when I came back out, the parents uh, okay. of my teams had arranged about a month's worth of food drives. Mm. And if they would have asked you what you need, you would have said nothing. Probably. But instead, they just said, this is what's happening. Yes. Uh, I mean, I had some very um, 
forceful parents on that team, which I which I appreciated at the time. Yeah, it was actually I was like really sick for a week going into that, and I wasn't sure what was going on. I was just thinking it was the flu, and I'm like, you know, I'll just drink bone broth, and you know, everything will be fine. And one of the parents called me that Sunday night, and they're like, "Look, you need to go to the emergency room. If you don't go by tomorrow, I'm taking you there." I'm like, "Well, I have an appointment in a week." They're like, "No," and they actually came and kidnapped me and took me to the hospital that wow. morning. And you know, I was very fortunate that they did because my my potassium, all these kind of things, were incre- incredibly elevated, and they had to rush me to the hospital. And yeah, it was a big to do. So, are you in a place now? I think you are, but I'd like to hear you talk about it. Uh, more vulnerable, softer, more willing to accept help. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Um, And what do you attribute that to? That's a good question. Again, I think, I think just the realization that, uh, you know, over the past couple of years, I, I know that the route that I've taken has, has been very helpful in a lot of ways, nutritionally and everything, but my body's just at a point now where, uh, I need this to happen at some point, and I need people in my life that are willing to help me and do these little things. Because again, the realization that uh, I can't do everything by myself anymore, you know. Um, but I think being around the tribe, tribe men's group, and just allowing people uh, in my life a little bit more, and I know they reach out to me, and I think just kind of letting my guard down has been. Uh, has been very helpful for me and just realizing that not everybody, uh, or I I think everybody has, uh, a part of them that wants to help others. And it, uh, a coach had once told me because when I was going through this initially, you know, he knew how stubborn I was. And he says, you know, Josh, you got to understand that, um, everybody wants to help others. It's kind of how we go through life. We want to help others. We want to, uh, have that satisfaction of being able to help others. And when you deny people that opportunity, you're taking away something from them as well. Exactly. So. Exactly. And you know, I, as I'm listening to you talk, I get, I get visions and I see things in my head when I hear people talk and going back to what you said about, you know, originally you're like, you didn't want to be that guy. Right. Which I think one thing that's interesting, this is not about comparing experiences, but as a therapist, I want you to know, everybody feels that they don't want to be that person, whatever that is for them. If it be a physical ailment or something that they're dealing with mentally, or the person who has a certain childhood or everybody's like, I don't want people to think I'm that person. So just to bring some, like, so, you know, we're all with you. Like we all have that. Um, And that, you know, part of that is when, you know, we feel like I don't want to accept that part because then people will look at me that way. And like you said, you, you had a lot of people in your life where you're like, you've seen that at work where people have made their issue, their identity. And you're like, I don't want that to be my identity. And then what ends up happening over time, which it sounds like this is, you know, what you're experiencing is we have that wholeness where there's all these parts of us, regardless of your, you know, I know your physical, you know, issue, it you know, becomes a big part of your life, obviously, you know, like you said, you're spending, what'd you say, four hours in dialysis three times a week. Correct. And that's a lot of time. So how can you deny that, that, but at the same time, that's a piece of you. And there's this wholeness where the visual I get is just, it's like there you're, you've just expanded so much. And now that just has a place where it can sit, but it doesn't sit alone anymore. You know, it's like we all, um, and when you expand like that, more people, not only that coach you talked to is a hundred percent, right. 
people do want to help, but now your whole community expands. Mm -hmm. Now it's not just these one, two, three, four people. It's like everybody because they can feel that you're open to it. Sure. You know, it's like you, you bring people to you. So anyway, just wanted to share that. Thank you. Wholeness. Well, and, um, I guess I want to ask you and then, uh, and we're eventually going to, um, talk about how, if somebody's interested, whether or not they want to help Josh out or some, just how to get on a list, a donor list. We'll, we'll kind of talk about that. We'll put it in the resources, of the show notes, but if we were to get there, I want to talk about the emotion of these physical challenges, because I don't know what the statistics say for somebody in your condition, but it's certainly not that good. Is it like, what's the deal? Well, there's so many factors involved in that, Todd. I mean, um, you can you can survive on dialysis for for a good length of time, but again, it's so hard on your body that if you're not doing the proper things nutritionally and stuff, and you know, adding exercise and that kind of stuff in, into it, uh, especially as you get older, um, it's it'll take a toll on your life. Mm. I, I don't have numbers to back up, you know, maybe this, this many years or whatever. Cause again, everybody's situation a little bit different. Um, but what was the other part of your question? Well, I, I think what I'm thinking of, and hopefully you're okay with this, but there's a moment in a retreat mm-hmm. where you talked about, um, I, I, I don't know how you showed up at the retreat, but you seemed like you were in a down state when you showed up. Okay. And the first night we do some pretty significant sharing and you're like, I'm not going to, contribute to my 401k because right. I'm not going to be around. Sure. And I guess I just want to know is that are these highs and lows being taken care of? Are you uh, how, how do you deal with this emotionally and do you feel like you have the tools in your toolbox to deal with this because I'm you know, I'm one person who's trying to kind of support my friend. Um I just, I guess I just want you to talk I want to create the space for you to talk about the emotion of having such significant challenges? Well, again, yeah, I think it varies on, on day to day, uh, week to week. Um, I think sometimes when I have my biggest physical challenges, when things are aching and things are in pain and, um, I, you know, I sometimes probably just go down the wrong road mentally. Like, you know, I know this is catching up with me and, you know, if, if the transplant doesn't happen sometime soon, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think about that, uh, the 401k thing all the time. I'm like, you know, I mean, that's, 25 years away, you know, I mean, as much as my body's been through, am I going to even make it that long? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, so, um, so those thoughts creep into my head all the time. Do I have the tools necessary to, to deal with it? I think they're available. Do I use them all the time? Probably not. Right. Again, uh, as you well know, as anybody, I, I'm not great at talking about those things, but, um, and I think that's where I enjoy the d- retreats and stuff because there is uh, an opportunity to sit there and, and, and talk about it and not feel judged about it and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's going to be a continuous path for me, um, dealing with the emotional side. Mm. Um, again, I, I think for me, it's all based upon my physical. There are times when I just feel great, you know, and you know, I, I think that's just because it's always been such a huge part of my life. Uh, seeing that part of my life right now, just be so sporadic. Some, you know, there, there have been weeks I just couldn't physically work out, you know, and, and again, being such a big part of my life and something that I value a lot to see that kind of slowly dissipate here and there, I think is, is very hard for me. Mm-hmm. Todd, do you use all of your tools that you have available? Of course not. Right. Neither do I. 
So that's, you know, that's a practice for all of us. Like that's, you're just, and, and again, you know, I know we're all each other's teacher, but I'm really appreciating listening to your story because we just all can see ourselves, sure. you know? And, you know, when someone's like, we tend to like to look at other people and I know you weren't yeah. doing this, Todd, you were just asking the question straight out, but we look at other people. We're like, are you doing what you should? Yeah. Are you taking care of yourself? Are you asking for help? The question is we have to constantly turn that on ourselves mm-hmm. too. And then, you know, and then from that place, it's much easier so, to support other people mm-hmm. rather than, cause I think what you were saying before about the pity or the sympathy, the reason it can feel so uncomfortable sometimes is people put their stuff on you Mm -hmm. like oh you have issues but i don't and that's just not the case all the time we all we all could ask for help more well and what i want to do is acknowledge the fact that i've seen significant growth in you in the last x amount of months and we always talk about vulnerability equals strength and you are a freaking you have an exoskeleton on you and it's really hard to tap into Mm -hmm. And you just said, I'm not really good at talking about it, yet you're talking about it to about six or 7,000 people right now. And it takes courage it sure does. to be able to share this. Well, that's something that I, again, I think I've learned through this process was early on, I, again, like I said, I didn't want to talk about it. You know, I'd poo-poo whatever they wanted to talk about and I'd move on to the next subject. I just didn't want that to be who I was. But... Uh, the more I've, I figured out that the more I can talk about it, again, it's just like any other thing that you're going through in life. I think if you can just talk about it and get it off your chest and, and just whether it's just a singular person or a few different people, I think it just helps you so much emotionally, just, just the act of talking about it. Yeah. Mm, amen. And, and that's, and that's something that, you know, I've been able to come forward with a lot, you know, talking to other people that are going through transplants and stuff like that. I don't mind talking about it. People even during Uber will bring it up and they're like, well, I'm sorry, I, I didn't want mean uh, for you to start talking about it. And, and I'll, I'll happily talk about it with, mm-hmm. with perfect strangers. So, um, I, and I think, and I know that that helps me a lot emotionally, just being able to talk about it at sure. times. So, um, are you still doing transcendental meditation? I don't practice it as often as I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can probably give you a bunch of reasons why or mm-hmm. excuses, but, uh, I, I try to find moments to practice it, sure, but it's not as frequent as I want to right now. Got it, got yeah. it. Um, so he, so obviously we kind of spent some time telling um, Josh, telling his own story. So help me out with, because uh, I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to donating organs. When I think of donating organs, I think of somebody who dies of natural causes and then puts on their driver's license or in their in their their will. Their will. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, donate everything. Um, so can you explain the best of your ability, the difference between just donating when you're fine versus donating when you have when you just happen to pass away? Sure. Um, you know, living donation uh, is, is incredibly beneficial to the person that's receiving uh, a kidney or a liver um, because the lifespan of that is anywhere from two to four, maybe five times longer than a deceased kidney. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know the exact process and the reason. Well, I mean, obviously, you're taking it from a healthy living person yeah. uh, instead of trying to revive it into, uh, into another person. So, um, so yeah, the quality of life and I think the length of that kidney is going to be greater from a living donor mm-hmm. than it is from a deceased donor. And you're on a list. You've been on the list since you were 30 years old, right? 
Well, yes, but uh, as soon as I got the transplant, so it's been, been about three and a half years since I got back on it after my that the, the uh, transplant failed. Got it. Uh, so then I, as soon as you start dialysis, your, your time, uh, your wait time starts. Got it. And you are pretty far down. Well, that kind of depends. I mean, yes, in uh, Chicago, bigger cities like Chicago, LA, New York, uh, the demand is much higher than the supply. So your wait time is anywhere from six to eight years, maybe longer for a deceased kidney. Um, in places like, um, I'm just going to use like Sioux Falls, Minnesota, um, communities that don't have as much demand, you know, your wait time is going to be a little bit shorter. So like, I think I remember talking to the nurse at Sioux Falls is like three to four years. Mm-hmm. So your wait time is a lot, lot less. And since I'm doing workups at Sioux Falls, uh, my wait time starts, you know, back at three and a half years ago when I first started dialysis. So I jump right to the top of the list on a place like that. Mm-hmm. So and are you doing things this summer to get on those lists? Yes. You, you got to spend about three days at the hospital doing workups. I mean, yeah, everything, EKGs, MRIs, et cetera, et cetera, blood work, uh, stress tests. So it takes a few days to go to a hospital, get your workups done and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I'll be spending uh, a few weeks or a couple of weeks out of my vacation this summer. And you've never elected to do this before. So I, this is kind of like the hopeful part of me, like, wow, Josh is really actively trying to, I don't know, put yourself in a position to be, to have it be more likely that you do get a donor. Sure. Well, a couple of things have happened though. I mean, uh, one, I think I faced the donation the same way I faced, you know, my disease early on is like, eh, it'll happen when it happens. I'll just, you know, not pay attention to it when it, when it comes around. Uh, that'll, that'll, uh, take care of itself. But again, as I said, uh, with just the way I feel anymore and just, you you kind of have that sense of, you know, your body kind of just breaking down on you. There's a bigger sense of urgency now for me. Um, but I've also reached out to to a few different people, um, who run some different organizations like the living kidney organization, uh, LKDO, LKDNO. Um, and he talked to me about, making sure I get on a bunch of different lists and um, why it's helpful to be in different places. Uh, Cause there's a couple of different lists that you can get on uh, or the uh, hospital uses different registries uh, to find matches for you. Mm-hmm. So some are uh, for the lack of a better term, better than others. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, just trying to diversify uh, different hospitals, mm-hmm. increase my chances of probably getting a donation a lot quicker. So what are the risks of somebody saying, um, yeah, I'd be interested in doing that? What are the health risks of those people that you, that, uh, as far as you know? Well, um, there are always going to be minimal risks whenever you go into some type of surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I can tell you is that talking to a bunch of different uh, nurses and doctors and stuff, the risks are minimal and they, they only occur in a small percentage of people. Uh, Like, for example, my sister uh, who donated to me, she was out of the hospital the next day and physically she was limited for a few weeks. But then, you know, everything for her has been normal. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also met people who had a, you know, a couple of minor complications um, with just like fluid retention and stuff like that. Nothing to really dramatically change their life. Yeah. Um, But almost all those things can be resolved after a small period of time. Mm So uh, there's very few people that come out of it with lasting effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you're, you're discharged pretty quickly. Yeah. So, 
Um, and what if somebody out there is listening and isn't an O, you know, blood type O, but might be interested in helping you? How would, how would that work? That's a very good question. Um, so uh, I don't know how many years ago it was. You know, a few years ago, they started a program called the uh, Paired Kidney Exchange. So uh, what that is, is if you wanted to donate to me, but you're not a match, uh, but you were able to donate to somebody else who was looking for a kidney and they had somebody that wanted to donate to me and was a match to me, we can swap partners. Mm. Uh, And they can do that in groups of 5, 10, 15, 20 people, sometimes even larger. Mm -hmm. So um, it just increases that pool uh, quite considerably of people that can donate. So I've got a few, few people now who you know, aren't a match for me, but they're in the uh, paired kidney exchange program. Uh, so if anything came up, it would just uh, increase my odds of, of getting something through them. Got it. And let's say somebody would be interested in that. How would we direct them to that? Is there a website or your name or what do they do? So uh, right now, uh, I'm only listed at Northwestern Hospital until I get all these workups done over the summer. But, uh, you know, just uh, call Northwestern Hospital and then you just tell them, hey, I'm looking to be a donor for this person. And in my case, it'd be, you know, I'm just, uh, looking to be a donor for Josh St. Pierre. And then uh, from there, I mean, they, they guide you through everything. They'll send you a packet. And then depending on where you are, you can be in Chicago or you can be across uh, the country in L.A. And they'll have you do some blood work uh, in uh, just wherever around you. And then, you know, then they kind of keep going through the process of, uh, matching up tissue work and a bunch of other things. So it's all done anonymously. I never know who gets tested, who doesn't get tested until uh, it ever becomes a match. Oh, wow. And then they'll let me know, like, hey, this person's been a match. Well, let's set up the schedule to donate. Would you want to know if somebody decided to submit their blood type or would you, is that information you want to have or no? Not really. Um I mean, I, I know uh, there's a lot of people that have a lot of great intentions out there and stuff like that and, and want to help. Um, I mean, if they want to tell me, that's fine. I mean, I, I don't need to know, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I've had people in the past, I, and I guess part of the reason, I think sometimes people feel awkward in that situation going, yeah, yeah, I want to get tested for you. I want to get tested for you. But I think sometimes it's just the right thing to say uh-huh. when they don't really have the intention to do it. And I don't ever want to put anybody in that uncomfortable position. Mm. Like, hey, did you get tested? Right. Yeah. You right. know? Uh, so, you know, um, it's it, that's a very difficult decision to make. I mean, I, I'm not going to make any, any bones about it. Uh, even when my sister finally said, look, I want to donate to you. I'm like, look, I really want you to think about this. I mean, I, I would love for you to do it, but I don't want you to feel obligated by any means just because I'm your brother. I mean, you got a life to live and you got things to go through and things to think, uh, things to think about. So please don't feel obligated to do it, you know? And, um, but you know, she was still willing to do it. So, yeah. Um, anything else, my sweetheart? I I do want to ask him a few questions about athletics because you're a really good soccer coach. (laughs) Um, well, I was just, we switch off I was just that. thinking that, I mean, I have all sorts of things, but I think you guys have done a really nice job and everything. I, I'm always a little out there with the things I'm thinking and seeing. So, um, but I was thinking about my friend, Carolyn, her, uh, sister, um, ended up donating a kidney to somebody, uh, I think it was a kid that she didn't know. 
and she was a match. You know, she went in and I don't know her story if she went in and gave her blood work for another reason and they figured out she was a match or if she just decided to... Um, I thought she worked for the hospital. Maybe that's that what it was. This young man and it happened to be that she matched up. I would love to have her on this Me show too. so she could tell her story. Me too, because I remember being so moved mm-hmm. um, seeing those pictures of her in the hospital with this boy who had been on a list for a really long time. And, you know, the family was like... I mean, talk about angels. You know, that's really what this is. It's a call for angels. And I'm I'm saying that in a very literal way. And, you know, just it's people who are like, yeah, that's some that's why we're here, right? Yeah. That's what this whole, you know, show, what we always talk about is our, you know, that's on that wall, you know, let's take care of each other. That's why we're here. You know, we're all on this like pursuit and this search thinking we're alone. And, you know, we, we can do things for each other. Really significant things. Yeah. Life altering things. So that's that's all. I'm just having all sorts of deep thoughts over here. Of course you are, sweetie. Yeah. What but a good I'll, person you are. Like just your energy is so great. He is a sweetheart. He is. I, I love just, this man. He's beautiful. He's inspirational. He's, he's resilient. Um, so and I've said that to you many times and I'm going to keep saying it to you and as long as you'll let me. <laughs> Um, is there anything regarding your kidneys, uh, that I didn't ask or Kathy didn't ask that you want to talk about before I ask you a few, uh, questions about soccer? Hmm. I don't, I don't think so, Todd. I think we pretty much covered most everything. Um, you know, I, I, the only thing I'm going to say is that, um, I, I think in this day and age people, I think everybody wants to be healthy. I think everybody kind of thinks about their health, but the unfortunate thing is, I don't think people really think about it too much until something happens to them or someone else. And sometimes that's a little too late. You know, again, my situation was one of those where um, there's nothing I could have done to reverse it at the the time. And I think people, and and I've had this conversation with many, many, many people. Um, But I think we go through life kind of wanting to be healthy. And, you know, we, we kind of do little things to go towards it. But I don't think we do enough until, again, something something happens to us and then we're in a scramble. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's just just my call to action that, you know, please pay attention to your health, uh, what what you put in your body, all you know, the little things of, of movement and exercise and how important all that stuff is is to your uh, overall health because you don't want to be in this situation, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah. Giving back. He's given us all advice, and we all should take it. He's right. Take care of your body. He's absolutely right. Um, so, soccer. How long have you been a soccer coach for? Almost twenty years. And didn't you? It's, I think you kind of had a reverse trajectory. At least it seems like it, because you coached at a very high level and have gotten into coaching much smaller children. Well, I, I started off coaching high school age girls, and then in high school, uh, a high school team and a college team. So yeah, most of my coaching early on was at uh, the older, mm-hmm. older kids, and uh, probably for the last ten years though, I've really, I've really enjoyed teaching the basics and the really the fundamentals of the game and all the other things outside of just soccer, you know, teaching the mental aspects and stuff like that. So I really wanted to work with the uh, the younger generation, the five to twelve year olds. Mm-hmm. So and that's basically what I've been doing for the last ten years. And when you and I have had certain conversations about certain teams you have, and certain parents sometimes complain because the team isn't winning or uh, this kid isn't getting enough playing time. Specifically about, uh, do you coach to win ball games? Not in the least. And I'm <laughs> yeah. I'm a very competitive person. 
when I started coaching youth soccer, you know, the five just, you know, it was really hard for me to, to preach not winning and not worrying about it. But in my mind, I was going crazy. Yeah. But the more, the more I learned about it, the more I, I studied uh, coaching at the youth level and really understanding developing kids, how unimportant the, the wins were. I mean, there's been studies out with, with they'll ask these kids all the time um, from ages five to 18, why do you play sports? Why do you play sports? And there's usually anywhere from 50 to 60 responses given, but always at the bottom, always is winning and trophies and all these, uh, all these things that aren't, aren't important to kids at all. Mm-hmm. And the things that they enjoy the most are being with their friends, learning a new sport, you know, the camaraderie. All those things that I, I don't think a lot of parents understand is is more important to them than than winning a trophy or a medal or anything like mm. that. Do you coach boys and girls? Yes. And do you see any inherent differences or generalizations between coaching boys versus girls? <laughs> well, there's a lot of differences, but uh, you know, girls can sometimes be a lot more easygoing, and for whatever reason, will want to really be taught. Yeah. You know, boys. Early on, I, I think it's kind of a pride thing, like they already know what, what to do and stuff like that. And um, so it's a little bit tougher to wrangle the boys, but um, but that's the, probably the biggest difference for me. Got it. It's, girls are just a little bit e- more easy going. <laughs> What's the hardest part, part of your job? Dealing with the parents. Shock for sure. Yes, yes, sure. we can relate. We understand. And what's weird is like, you know, what, let's say there's 15 kids in your team, and maybe 12 of the parents are awesome, and you know you don't have to deal with it. But right. those three, you know, what are the what if the request give us like I know that there's not just one thing that they say, but what's the general thing that you get where it gives you a headache? Is it the wins or is it the you're not doing enough? You know, the thing that bothers me the most, and and I don't think parents completely understand this, uh, especially in soccer. And maybe it, it might be a little different for like other sports, but soccer is one of those sports where you really got to let the kids play, you know, let them make decisions on the field, let them make the mistakes early on, let them learn to communicate with each other. And I get parents all the time that are over on the sideline, just coaching the kids, do this, do that, do that, go here, go there. And I'm like, just let me be the coach, yeah. you know, but secondly, Again, you got to let these kids make these decisions themselves. If they make a bad play, they make a bad play, but that's how they learn. Mm-hmm. The more we hold their hands through these things and stuff like that, uh, the less they're going to the, uh, think for themselves and the less they're going to uh, develop into uh, independent thinkers. Um, you know, that's those are the greatest gifts I think as coaches we can give them is to learn to make decisions. Uh, you allow kids to, to communicate on the field together like um, – for example, there'll be a time, let's say, where Molly's dribbling the ball up and Rebecca's on the outside, but Rebecca says nothing. And then uh, Rebecca will be like, why didn't you play me the ball? I'm like, well, you got to tell her you, you want the ball. You know, you can't wait for me to tell you, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think those early invaluable lessons that allow kids to be independent thinkers, think for themselves, make plays themselves, make mistakes themselves, um, where you can actually have conversations after the fact to use it as a learning tool. But again, parents, I think, are so worried that their kids are going to make mistakes and fail out on the field or they're not going to win that they want to hold their hand and help them and they're actually being more of a detriment than they are being uh, helpful. 
And I would say that um, what you're experiencing is what most classroom teachers experience, and I definitely experience even as someone who teaches college kids, is that that example you just gave of Rebecca and Molly, I think those are the two, is that they will say, why didn't you do this and tell me to do this? Why didn't? And it's because children are being directed so often and being told what to do that they haven't created that muscle or practiced that muscle enough. They have it innately, but they, they kind of feel, should I use it? Should I take this risk? Should I, because they're waiting for someone to tell them, you know, like I tell Todd all the time that, um, you know, with my college students, I, at their final project, I'll say, do a paper on whatever you want, a presentation on whatever you want. And it, they, it's very difficult for them because they're like, but wait, what about? Right. And I'm like, whatever you want. And that just makes them so tense and these are 18 19 20 year old kids so the the point is is that you what you're trying you're teaching so many things on the field you know they have to depend on each other right and they have to be able to tolerate the mistakes they make and they have to be able to respect the coach and listen and not have 10 coaches you know Todd and I have parents as parents have seen that so much and maybe we've even been a part of it Todd we've yelled onto the field before soccer is just a weird sport because like lacrosse, like my one daughter plays lacrosse. The ball's real small. The parents don't know the rules. It's very confusing. We're Base- observers. Baseball is such a slow game. Uh, football, like your the parents are further back, but with soccer, at least in the youth, the parents are right there. That's great. And the amount of times That's that great. they say kick the ball. <laughs> what is it? Is, how do you feel when parents are yelling kick the ball? <laughs> my head, my hand, my head is in my hands. <laughs> Just going, just let the kids play. Yes. <laughs> Kick the ball. Yeah, that's, that's, that, I think as soccer coaches, that's the worst thing that we hear from parents. Just kick it. Just kick it. No, just no, don't just it. kick it. Right. Don't, and, and you know what? The reason, and I'm saying this just because I want to make sure everybody knows we've been there. Our kids haven't played soccer for a long time, but Todd and I found ourselves saying that. Oh, it's hard to. And we looked at each other and we're like, look at what we're doing. We like talk about this all the time and we're yelling, kick the ball, run. And it's so we know how this is the self awareness piece. We know you want to say it, Mm -hmm. but it's the taking a deep breath and not saying it. Parents, just don't do it. Well, again, and again, I think that's a simple way of saying, uh, hurry up and get rid of it so you don't make any mistakes. You know, and and I'm, as, as much as you might know about soccer, I'm one who just teaches kids to dribble early on. Dribble, dribble, dribble. You're going to lose a lot more than you're going to be successful, but it'll build confidence in you. Um, it'll make your vision much better. But again, when that happens initially, there's so many mistakes. They're getting scored on because they're making mistakes. And that, and that adds up initially. Uh, but again, being through the process so many times, I know it's on the other end. Mm-hmm. And I know what the development's going to be like. I think parents just have to have a little bit of patience because again, these kids are playing a sport that they are just learning at the very beginning. I mean, we don't put a kid who's just learning how to ride a bike into a BMX uh, race right away, you know, or any of these things, you know, so we can't expect kids to be, uh, have a lot of success early on. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, there was a really great, uh, I think it was a paper or a video done on this where they talked about winning two or uh, winning too much early on is actually a detriment mm-hmm. because um, you start focusing on everything's got to be a win as, a, as opposed to the process. And when you do that and you don't have a lot of success, it'll frustrate you really early on because mm-hmm. your only goal is to win and you're not, and that's not happening. What else do you, do you work on at that point? You know, what else can you focus on? Uh, whereas if you're just asking them to do you know, a few things in a game 
and not worry about it, it gives them at least a goal and something to shoot for so they can work towards something a little bit more than just the overall win. Yes. Um, I 100% agree with that. Last thing. Who's Sammy? My, my, my wonderful little dog. Whenever I, you know, you and I, you drive me to the airport a lot. Yeah. And we have talks usually about something deep or important. And sometimes you have this look of seriousness on you. You're kind of a, your, your disposition is seriousness. Sure. One way I can get you out of that seriousness. <laughs> <laughs> to is talk to, about Sammy. To talk about Sammy. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you had Sammy for? It'll be two years this July. I rescued him from uh, Paz, Chicago, downtown. Mm, good decision. Great decision. What kind of dog is Sammy? He's part hound, part pointer. He's about 35 pounds. Oh my God, that's awesome. Yeah. He's a ham. <laughs> Love Sammy. Pets are the best. I know. I know that I, unfortunately, Josh... I am allergic to dogs. Um, I love dogs more than I can say. So it doesn't keep me from petting them or being around them. And I still say to Todd, occasionally I have a day where I'm like, let's just do it. My daughter, JC, is allergic to dogs too. Who uh, you, Josh has actually driven JC to lacrosse practice before for us. Um, but so we, but JC is on allergy medicine now. So there's always part of me that's oh like, geez. I know, listen to him. He's like, it's not going to happen. But I just, I feel your love for that dog because I think animals are the best. You know, it's, it, and I've had this conversation many times with people that I, I've always loved dogs and I was always wanting to get a dog, but I wanted to be in the right situation. And, uh, as far as a place for him to run around and stuff like that. And when I got him, it was weird. Cause I was waiting for this moment. Like, you know, the, the skies are going to op- open up like this is my dog. Yeah. Right. But when I went there, I actually, I found him and, uh, I went and played with him a little bit and I'm like. Yeah, I was asking questions, you know, is he good with kids and stuff? I'm a, you know, I'm a soccer coach and they're like, I don't know. We don't know much about him. And I'm just kind of sitting there and I go, you know what? Let's just give it a shot. <laughs> it's just a very impromptu decision. And I knew I was going to love the dog, but the, how deep that love is for mm-hmm. that animal is still amazes me. I mean, I think about him all the time. Like even now I know he's at home waiting for me to come home and feed him. And, <laughs> and that's all I got on my mind is that poor dog just going, where is he? He's late. <laughs> he's like, you know, I know. <laughs> he told me. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, that's um, awesome. So, um, I, so there's a phone number. I'm on Northwestern, uh, website. Uh, it's 312-801-2976. That's just, I think the general number, you might have to do some more digging beyond that. Can I give you a different number? Oh, please. Thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, so uh, obviously Northwestern has many, many different, uh, areas. Uh, so the Kovlar Organ Transplant Center, uh, which you want to reach, uh, is 312-695-0828. Thank you. Forget about that number I gave. So, and here's the other thing. For those of you who are like interested, um, you know, in any of this and they're like, I need more information or I want to get involved or I want to get tested. And if these, if the number's not working out for you, just contact Todd and I. We'll figure it out. Yeah, just go to zenparentingradio.com and go to our contact page or go to Todd at zenparentingradio.com or Kathy at zenparentingradio.com. Don't let red tape or people not answering your call hold you up. Like, let us help you um, get what you need because we can just go to Josh and get names and numbers yeah. and, you know, we, we have easy access. So just don't... Um, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Yes. Um, my last thing, my brother, is please um, continue letting me support you. Please continue letting other guys in the tribe men's group support you. And please let anybody else who wants to support you because you deserve it. And um, I love you. 
Oh, thank you, Todd. I, I love you too. Yeah. And uh, just to mention this earlier, if anybody wants to send a meal to me once a week, I'm, uh, I'm yes. always open to food. That's, That's right. <laughs> That's right. I was thinking the same thing. And also, Josh, from my perspective, your story, even though people may not have the identical story, your story helps other people who are challenged in pain feel alone or don't want to speak out. I just want you to know that it helps people. Yes. It helps me. Mm-hmm. And the things I'm thinking about are not even close to what you're thinking about. And I'm like, this is good for me. Mm-hmm. So well, thank you. That That is one of the reasons I, I told Todd that I wanted to do this was it wasn't just a selfish endeavor. Right. Because um, again, there's a lot of people, you know, kidney, kidney disease is growing exponentially and there's more and more people looking for, uh, for a donation. And they're just, they just don't have enough deceased, um, donors to fulfill, um, the need. And, you know, people, unfortunately, I see this all the time through the dialysis center. People are passing away all the time just because of nobody to donate to them. So, uh, this is more of a, uh, than a selfish endeavor. Again, it's more of a call to action that, you know, kidney and I'll even throw in liver transplant, you know, from a live donor, um, isn't, again, it's, it doesn't cost any money really, unless you're traveling from one state to another, all the expenses are pretty much covered for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, like I said, the, um, the aftermath, there's, there's very little problems that happen afterwards. You know, again, it, there's always going to be an issue with surgery every now and then. Uh, but most anything that, that might happen, uh, that might happen from the surgery, uh, would dissipate with time, with time. So, um, so yeah, this is an awareness show too. Yeah. Awareness about something we may not know exists. So thank you. Josh and Pierre, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for having me for continuing to inspire me as a human being on this planet and everybody else out there that's listening. All right, brother. Be good. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. We appreciate you. Remember, you can subscribe to Zen Parenting Radio so you never miss an episode. And feel free to leave a review on iTunes. It helps people find us. Do you want more Zen Parenting? Check out Team Zen. It's a $25 monthly subscription where you'll get two live Zen Talks with an opportunity to ask Kathy and I questions live. If you can't join us live, you can still access all Zen Talks through the Team Zen podcast app. You'll have access to all previous Zen Talks, connect with like-minded people through our private Facebook page. We have a book club and get discounts on everything that we have to offer. Interested in inviting us to speak at your conference or organization? Go to zenparentingradio.com and submit a speaker request. While you're there, check out our upcoming events or you can purchase one of my three books. Guys, want to achieve a better work-life balance or deepen your relationship with loved ones? I have good news. I coach guys. We can talk in person, by phone, or FaceTime. You choose. First session is free. And if you're in Chicagoland, contact me about the tribe. It's a men's group, and it's an opportunity for guys to come together and talk about what really matters. If you ever shop via Amazon, you can help us out by going through the Amazon link under Support Us on our homepage. It doesn't cost you a thing, but we get a small commission from Amazon. Finally, I want to give special thanks to our two foundation partners, the Tree of Life Chiropractic Care and Avid Painting and Remodeling. Thank you for your love and support, and keep on trucking.